This episode contains themes of sexual violence and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Depending on who you ask, Carla Homolka was a funny, attractive, and intelligent young woman who, with a love for animals, was on her way to a rewarding career as a vet tech with the potential to become a full-fledged veterinarian. Others stated that she could be bossy, controlling, and shockingly remorseless, as in a case when she inadvertently killed the pet hamster of a childhood friend by throwing it out of a window with a makeshift parachute that failed to open. The friend was inconsolable, while Homolka seemed oddly unaffected. As Homolka grew older, she seemed obsessed with living the good life by landing a wealthy and attractive husband. She was also reported to indulge in dark sexual fantasies involving Fifty Shades of Grey-like scenarios, which involved extreme acts of sadomasochism. It was on a midsummer's evening in 1987 in Toronto, Canada, when the then 17-year-old Homolka, who was in town for a veterinarian convention, met the narcissistically charming Paul Bernardo a 23-year-old from a wildly dysfunctional upper-middle-class family whose father was a convicted child molester and whose mother stood by helpless while knowing of her husband's crimes. Carla and Paul were instantly attracted to each other and seemed to be a perfect fit, indulging each other's often extreme desires that revolved around power and control. Unknown to Carla at the time, Paul had become more and more obsessed and violent with his sexual proclivities eventually graduating to violently raping young women whom he abducted in different areas in Scarborough, a neighborhood in Toronto. While Carla had her suspicions, it is widely believed that she did not know the full extent of Paul's activities until later in the relationship. In the meantime, their own relationship continued to become more and more extreme, with Paul's need for power and control expressing itself in the physical and emotional abuse of Carla. By 1990, Paul had moved in with Carla and her family and was accepted as Carla's fiancé. It was reported that Paul, who had been disappointed by the fact that Carla had not been a virgin when she met him, began to become more and more obsessed with Carla's 15-year-old sister, Tammy. Paul openly flirted with Tammy, often giving her gifts and buying her alcohol. Carla, knowing that Paul had developed a sexual attraction to her little sister, began to assist him by giving him access to her by doing things such as breaking the window latch in Tammy's bedroom so Paul could enter while Tammy slept. As Paul's behavior toward Tammy grew more and more extreme, Carla helped him devise a plan that would allow him to take Tammy's virginity by stealing veterinarian drugs from her work and sedating Tammy, allowing for the two of them to rape her while she was unconscious. On December 23, 1990, Carla and Paul drugged Tammy by slipping sleeping pills into her rum and eggnog cocktail. Carla also attempted to drug her sister by applying a halothane-soaked cloth over Tammy's mouth, the contents of which left Tammy with a chemical burn on her face. While in the process of raping Tammy, she began to vomit and choke violently. Paul and Carla attempted to revive her but were unsuccessful, leaving Tammy to die in the basement while Carla called paramedic. Paul and Carla quickly hatched a plan, cleaned Tammy's body and moved it, and sold the story about Tammy vomiting in her sleep from drinking too much. Incredibly, the story was accepted by authorities at the time, and Paul and Carla were free to resume their twisted relationship. In another disturbing detail, Carla and Paul videotaped the entire event. Documenting their crimes in this way would become a pattern in their relationship. In June of 1991, Carla and Paul again drugged and assaulted a 15-year-old girl that Carla had befriended, but who had woken up the next morning believing that she simply drank too much the evening prior. A week later, Paul abducted 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey outside of her house in the early morning hours. Paul told Leslie that he was there to break into the neighbor's house, 
after which he was able to force her into his car. Once back home, Paul and Carla filmed themselves brutally raping the young woman. At one point during the assault, Leslie's blindfold slipped off of her, giving Paul and Carla reason to believe that she would be able to identify them. What happened next was debated by Paul and Carla, with Carla claiming that Paul strangled Leslie to death, while Paul insisting that Carla killed her by giving her a lethal dose of benzodiazepine. Paul and Carla hid Leslie's body in the basement while Paul came up with a plan to encase Leslie's dismembered body in blocks of cement and dump them in a nearby lake. On April 16, 1992, Carla and Paul scouted potential victims at a nearby Catholic school, settling on 15-year-old Kristen French, whom they spotted walking home. Carla, pretending to need help with directions, called to Kristen and asked her for help with a map. Distracted, Paul was able to attack Kristen from behind, forcing her into the car. Over Easter weekend, the two reenacted their previous crimes as they brutally raped and tortured Kristen, again filming the entire event. It was later revealed that while they had not planned on murdering Leslie Mahaffey, that the two did in fact always plan to murder French, as they never took precaution to hide their faces from her. It was reported that Paul strangled Kristen with the same extension cord used to kill Leslie Mahaffey. Kristen's body was found on April 30th after Carla and Paul had dumped it in a shallow ditch roughly 45 minutes from where Kristen was abducted. Her hair had been cut off as a way to make identifying her more difficult and physical evidence had been washed off. Carla and Paul continued their abduction and rape of young women after the murder of Kristen French. Authorities connected the two to at least two other rapes and the murder of a fourth victim, Elizabeth Bain, who disappeared in June of 1990. It wasn't until 1992 when things finally began to unravel for Carla and Paul. Paul was becoming more and more violently abusive with Carla, and authorities were beginning to put pieces together from the murders and rapes, starting with matching Paul's DNA to a number of the crimes. As the net tightened, Carla also visited a lawyer and reportedly sought immunity in exchange for information about Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, including where to find videotaped evidence. Carla's participation in the crimes, however, did not warrant immunity, and she was offered a plea deal for a 12-year sentence in exchange for her testimony against Paul. While often portrayed as a victim of Paul as well, the plea deal was widely criticized as many saw Carla as just as culpable for the rapes and murders. In 1995, Paul Bernardo was convicted of the first-degree murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, as well as a number of aggravated sexual assault charges. He was given life in prison without the chance of parole for 25 years and designated as a dangerous offender which, by Canadian law, ensures that he will most likely never be released from prison. News articles have revisited Carla Homolka who has reinvented herself by marrying the brother of her attorney after being released from prison in 2005. She reportedly moved around with her husband and attempted to change her name in a bid to distance herself from her past. It was reported that she spends time raising her own children and volunteering at a local elementary school. This episode is about the Ken and Barbie killers.
Hello, and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McConnell and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, this episode was actually suggested by a couple of our listeners, Derek and Vanessa. And it's an interesting case, to say the least. It's interesting because I think we often think of serial killers as kind of lone wolves in the sense that they tend to operate independently. So when we have a case where we have two people committing the murders together, it's an even more rare case and a category of rare cases. I would agree with that, definitely. It's definitely a case off the beaten path, for sure. That being said, it's actually not unheard of. Other famous cases include those of Bonnie and Clyde. I'm sure you've heard of them. Of course. Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. Do you know who they were, David? I don't. They were the ones that the um, movie Natural Born Killers was based on. Oh. Yeah, we're going way back though, right? Okay. And another famous case are Fred and Rosemary West. And those are just the romantic couples. There are other serial killing duos such as Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, David Gore and Fred Waterfield, and Lee Boyd Malvo and John Allen Muhammad. Now, although we have several examples where this has occurred, It's important to point out that it's still exceedingly rare. It's just that these cases tend to be all over the media, so we're more likely to hear about them. Anyway, getting back to Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo, this case really gripped the world. I think part of it was that we don't expect people like Homolka and Bernardo to be sadistic murderers. They were young, attractive, and middle class. At first blush, many believed Homolka to be another of Bernardo's victims. I mean, how could a woman do these horrific things to other women? It's not a narrative we're used to hearing. And while Carla presented herself as a victim to the police and was ultimately given what many have termed a sweetheart deal, that deal that you mentioned where she was able to plead guilty to two counts of manslaughter and serve only 12 years in prison, Many have suggested she was not just another of Bernardo's victims. Videotapes not just of the murders, but of a sexual assault of that 15-year-old girl you mentioned in the intro, David, who is known only as Jane Doe, painted a much different picture. But these tapes, as you mentioned, were not seen by prosecutors until after Homolka had already made her deal. In these videos, she's said to have played an active role in the assaults, and she was the one who actually administered the drugs to both her sister Tammy and Leslie Mahaffey. Drugs which directly caused the death of her sister, and which may have caused, or at least contributed significantly to, Leslie Mahaffey's death. Additionally, she was noted to have actually befriended and then lured Jane Doe to their home, where she drugged and then raped her independently and prior to Bernardo also sexually assaulting her. So was she a willing participant, or was she somehow brainwashed to act the way that she did? Unfortunately, I don't have an answer to that question. And as it turns out, it's a really difficult one to answer. Not just for Carla Homolka, but also for other killing couples. So I wanted to start out by talking a little bit about sexual sadism. So the actual clinical definition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM-5, is sexual sadism disorder, and this is what is considered a paraphilic disorder. 
Paraphilias are sexual fantasies and behaviors that are considered atypical. Paraphilias in and of themselves don't automatically equal a paraphilic disorder. People have all sorts of atypical sexual interests. And David, in the intro, you even mentioned like that Fifty Shades of Grey. That's a pretty mainstream series of novels and movies that talk about, you know, sadomasochism, but in a way that's a bit different than what we're discussing today, I would argue. Okay. So paraphilias only become diagnosable disorders when they cause distress, life disruption, or cause harm or have the potential to cause harm to others. There are actually several paraphilic disorders in the DSM-5, but sexual sadism disorder can be considered one of the more serious. The term sadism actually comes from the Marquis de Sade, who was a French aristocrat who often wrote of the pleasures of violent sex. So sexual sadism disorder is diagnosed in individuals who derive sexual pleasure from causing physical or psychological pain and suffering to another individual. What is interesting is that some sadists report sexual arousal even from engaging in non-sexual violence towards others. And some have actually argued that some cases of domestic violence and child abuse can actually be sexual sadism disorder at its core. We don't know exactly how or why this disorder develops, but it's believed to be rare. And I say believed because it can be difficult to get people with this disorder to willingly come forward and talk about it, as you could probably imagine, right? Sure. Much of what we know about this disorder comes from those who are involved in the criminal justice system. And while many sexual sadists may get in trouble with the law, some may not, either because they're not yet caught or because they are committing these acts against a partner who, for many reasons, may be unlikely to come forward. There may also be individuals who have violent sexual fantasies, but do not ever act on them. According to the DSM-5, depending on the criteria used to diagnose this disorder, it is believed to occur in somewhere between, get ready for this, David, 2% and 30% of population. Yeah, that's vague. Right? That is an extremely wide range, and it really isn't very helpful for us determining how common it is. But studies looking at committed sexual offenders in the United States found that less than 10% of them were diagnosed with sexual sadism disorder. And of individuals convicted of committing sexually motivated homicides, the prevalence rate was between 37% and 75%, depending on the study. Anyway, as I mentioned, we don't know exactly how this develops but it seems to persist and intensify when the individual reinforces this connection between violence and sex, either through engaging in sexual acts with another person or through masturbation. Once that begins, something similar to tolerance can occur, where the person requires more extreme situations to obtain the same level of arousal and euphoria. Almost like addiction. Yeah, it's, it has actually been compared to addiction by some psychologists. Mm-hmm. One well-known book on sexual offenders was written by Dr. Anna Salter, and it's called Predators, Pedophiles, Rapists, and Other Sex Offenders, Who They Are, How They Operate, and How We Can Protect Ourselves and Our Children. And her book has an entire chapter on sadists. So, David, this was a book I was required to read in graduate school. And I will just warn you, 
while it's very interesting, it's very informative, it is definitely not something you want to read right before bed. Right. Just putting that out there. Um, It has some pretty graphic examples as well. So if that's something that you're particularly sensitive to, it may not be a book that I would recommend. But if you are interested in learning more about sexual offenders, I think Dr. Salter really helps the reader understand sexual offending and the thought patterns sex offenders engage in to commit their crimes. Anyway, in her book, she discusses empathy as it relates to sadistic behavior. And what I thought was particularly interesting was that she believed these individuals were actually acutely aware of how their victims were feeling during the offenses. She says that this is generally incompatible with psychopathy, as psychopaths have severe deficits in empathy. Rather than looking at their victims as objects, the way a psychopath does, sadists crave the pain and suffering of others. Dr. Salter describes a reverse empathy, where rather than being indifferent to pain and suffering as the psychopath is, the sadist is attuned to it and seeks to produce this specifically. She explains this is reverse empathy because rather than causing a similar emotion in them, it causes the opposite. So, for example, vulnerability in the victim makes them feel invulnerable or invincible. Submission in the victim makes them feel dominant, and etc. Dr. Salter also explains that sadists tend to project their internal view of themselves onto their victims. So while many of them blame their victims, saying they deserve the torture and pain for being disgusting or evil, it is their own feelings of self-loathing and disgust that are being externally placed to justify their behavior. What is particularly interesting about sadists is that they often fly under the radar. Roy Hazelwood, the famous FBI profiler, once described them as, quote, three-piece suit offenders. In one study, 65% of sadists were found to have no criminal history, and they found that those who had gotten away with three or more sexually motivated murders were more likely to be married, have served in the military, have beyond a high school education, and be seen as an upstanding citizen than those sadists who had committed only one murder. Now, it makes sense that those who do not, quote-unquote, look like a sadistic murderer would be better able to get away with their behavior, so that's likely part of the issue. And that was certainly the case for Paul Bernardo. While he was questioned by police for being the Scarborough rapist, he was not pursued as a suspect because he didn't fit the part, so to speak. He was good-looking, polite, middle-class man with a beautiful wife. How could he possibly be a sadistic rapist, right? Sure. You know, that actually came up in the other podcast when we were doing background on this case, was that he had actually been reported for his sexual proclivities and because he was sexually violent. But really, it didn't seem like anything really came of that. No, he was reported. And then when they um, posted the picture that victims, that the police uh, artist had drawn of him from the victims. Right. Uh, Some of the people who knew him actually said that it looked like him, and he even would make jokes, so I've heard, to the police when they asked him about it, saying that, yeah, you know, he had been told that by other people that he looked like the picture, and kind of, you know, blew it off and, and joked about it. Right. So I guess it just goes to show you never can judge a book by its cover. No, you can't. 
I found many articles where mental health professionals who evaluated Bernardo stated he met the diagnostic criteria for sexual sadism disorder. However, he himself has continued to deny he was ever aroused to the pain and suffering of his victims. But what about Homolka? While women can be diagnosed with this disorder as well, it's exceedingly rare, even rarer than in men. And none of the information I found regarding the psychological evaluations of Homolka indicated she was ever provided this diagnosis. So how do we explain her compliance, or worse, her cooperation? There was actually a study published in the Journal of Family Violence in March 2002, authored by Janet Warren, a famous social worker, professor, and liaison to the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and Roy Hazelwood. The study was titled Relational Patterns Associated with Sexual Sadism, a study of 20 wives and girlfriends. Warren and Hazelwood conducted in-depth interviews with 20 wives and girlfriends of sexual sadists who were convicted of sexually motivated murders. While I don't know if Hamolka was one of the women interviewed by Warren and Hazelwood, they did interview women in Canada, and there is a case they refer to that sounds pretty similar to this case. We'll have it on our website so you can read it yourself and decide. Anyway, what they found were that many of the women had a history of physical or sexual abuse in their own past, which they theorized likely made them vulnerable to their sadistic partners. They also indicated the men generally used a series of tactics to first bond to the women and then slowly erode their boundaries. For instance, the majority of the women indicated their partners were initially very loving and attentive and did not initially displace sexually sadistic behaviors. It seemed that over time, they gradually pushed boundaries with the sexual behavior becoming more and more extreme. Many of the women reported being compliant with the men in their offenses, both the sexual assaults and the murders, out of fear for their own safety or the safety of their children. In general, Warren and Hazelwood also theorized these particular women were more vulnerable to this process because they had low self-esteem or a dependent personality style. Anyway, once this process was underway, many of the women felt they were in too deep to get out, and once they had been compliant in one act, their partners had leverage over them to help keep them compliant going forward. Now, there are certainly some aspects of Warren and Hazelwood's research that fits with Bernardo and Hamolka. She was six years younger than him, and in much of what I read, there was a process of him introducing more and more extreme sexually sadistic behavior into their relationship. He also beat her, once so severely she had to be hospitalized. And she said that she longed for the time when they first began dating, for the way he treated her early on. But there are also some pieces that don't fit. For instance, Hamoka had no known history of sexual or physical abuse. She was also noted as having a rebellious streak, acting as a bully, and on one occasion, as you mentioned, David, killing her friend's hamster when she threw it out a window with a small parachute attached to its back. While she was never, to my knowledge, diagnosed with psychopathy, some described her as being somewhat callous and self-absorbed and the videotapes showed her being an active participant in the sexual assaults and murders. An interesting term came up while I was doing my research for this episode. It's actually another paraphilic disorder called hybristophilia. This is defined as the sexual attraction to someone who commits crimes. 
So I guess it would be the epitome of the person who's attracted to that, you know, bad boy or bad girl. Right. It's a sort of a dark take on a primary fantasy that women have about the alpha male type. You know, you can see examples of this in individuals who seek out relationships with infamous criminals. A psychologist named Catherine Ramsland, who's a forensic psychology professor at DeSalle University, looked at women who dated or married known serial killers. I always thought that would be a really interesting population to study. I think it would be too. I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. She found some themes in this group, including lacking a father figure, having low self-esteem, or having sort of a savior complex where the women believed they could fix the offender. Ah, okay. Yeah, so could this have been part of what was going on for Homolka? I suppose we'll never know for sure, but we do know that her father was actually present, so that lacking a father figure doesn't quite fit. And she was generally described as having pretty high self-esteem. But did she think that she could save Bernardo? That's a question only she can answer. Homolka was actually released from prison in 2005, as you mentioned, David. She moved, changed her name, and remarried. She now has three children and, from all accounts, is living a law-abiding, normal life. So, was it really that Bernardo was the criminal mastermind and she was just another of his victims, as she claimed? After all, he was raping women before Homolka was involved. Right. This is true. Or was it her encouragement that served to escalate his behavior? Or did she experience some enjoyment engaging in these acts as well? Or perhaps it was some combination of all of these things. You know, I know that she has really wanted nothing to do with the media since she was released from prison. So I don't think we'll ever get her side of the story. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think that we're just sort of left to speculate. I think she's really trying to avoid the spotlight right now. Yeah, which, you know, I I kind of understand. Yeah. So I'll first start off by saying that this was a very disturbing case, to say the least. It's a highly toxic dynamic between two people, for sure, that led to some very grisly crimes. Both Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo seemed to be very sick people at the time these crimes were committed, but to me it seemed that their relationship was really the match that that sort of lit the fuse as it pertained to the escalation of these crimes. I have to echo that, David. I mean, I think, you know, just reading about this case and listening to podcasts and watching movies and documentaries, it kind of stuck with me. It was particularly disturbing. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly toxic. And so that's sort of what I became fascinated with. You know, it seems obvious that Paul Bernardo probably would have graduated to murder at some point on his own, at least in my opinion. But what do you think about that? You know, I mean, I guess it's kind of hard to say. Um, It did seem that he tended to let his victims go. And, you know, if, if we believe what they said, then Tammy's death was actually an accident. And so you have to kind of wonder, you know, once that door was opened, maybe that's what kind of led them down that path the other two times. But I I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, I I think it's a fascinating question. With Carla Homolka and his relationship with her, did that give them an opportunity that he would not have gotten on his own? Because it seems obvious to me that Homolka was not an innocent bystander in these crimes. This seems to be a much more complicated issue, however, as we do know that Bernardo was extremely controlling and physically, emotionally, and even sexually abusive to Carla. 
Even if Bernardo did eventually graduate to murder on his own, there is no doubt in my mind that Carla's presence and contributions to the crimes definitely exacerbated their heinousness. Yeah, I agree. So for this episode, I wanted to look at some concepts in relationship dynamics rather than focus on Paul and Carla individually, as I think that's been done quite a bit. But just to recap, in the research that you and I did, Dr. McCono, it, it does seem obvious that Bernardo is a sexual sadist. I would go further than that and say he's probably a narcissist and most likely a psychopath as well. That's just the impression that I got. Well, and I think when you look at the psychological evaluations that were done on him, I think the consensus was that he did meet the diagnosis or the criteria for a diagnosis of psychopathy. Yeah. So while Hamoka also probably had traits of psychopathy that I would argue puts her on that spectrum, I would probably say definitely not to the extent that Bernardo had. Obviously, I'm not an expert on psychopaths, but that's the general impression I got from the research that we did. For those of you who are interested in an in-depth retelling of the Ken and Barbie crimes, one of the well-done podcasts that Jessica and I listened to on a recent road trip was called Writing About Crime, which is a true crime podcast produced out of Canada. Well-produced and well-researched, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. It's great. You guys should listen to it. Yeah, definitely gave us a lot of information. In the episode that we listened to, she does a very good job of diving into the personal histories of Bernardo and Homolka individually, including some very disturbing facts about their childhoods and adolescent years as well. You know, it's interesting, as it seems like many who have looked into this case all seem much more interested in Homolka than in Bernardo, as it seems at first glance anyway, that her case is much more complicated than his. It's almost like Bernardo is a psychopath, okay, case closed, we've seen that before. And that Homolka, on the other hand, because don't see this sort of thing very often, it just warrants a much more in-depth look. Add to this, she has completed her sentence involving these crimes and is currently out and living her life, and that makes her case all the more fascinating. Yeah, I have to agree. But like I said, it's the toxic dynamic between Bernardo and Homolka that really interests me. So today I wanted to talk about codependency and relationships as I personally think this case exemplifies codependency in its darkest and most destructive form. So keep in mind that most cases of codependency will never, and I use a capital N on the word never, turn into anything like this. This case is one of those rare examples of when two very sick people get together and turn into something even more extreme through the relationship dynamics between them. So let's start by talking about codependency, which is something I hear a lot about in the work that I do as a substance abuse counselor. Most of the time, but not all, the man in prison is what's known in a codependent relationship as the taker, or the one who in the relationship is dependent on the giver, who is the one that often cares for and enables the behavior of the taker. Many of the guys I work with wrestle with issues of narcissism, which is directly related to their criminal behavior. Add to this any kind of substance abuse and you have a very destructive combination. So let me clarify that most of the men I work with are not full-blown narcissists. But as with all personality disorders, these dysfunctions exist on a spectrum, with most normal well-adjusted people on one end, and with a diagnosable narcissist, or whatever personality disorder we're talking about, on the other. Most of the guys I work with would probably fall a click or two closer to the full-blown narcissist side, more so than the rest of us, as committing crimes, regardless of how many ways these guys have tried to rationalize those crimes, are generally considered to be very self-serving in nature, with little, if any, attention paid to the potential victims of those crimes. 
So when the men I work with finally get to me, many of them have acknowledged and accepted that they have these issues, as evidenced by the fact that their lives have fallen apart in a spectacular way and they are now in prison. Many of them no longer have relationships with spouses, their children, or other family members, as others in the family have had to distance themselves to protect themselves psychologically and emotionally. So in an act of self-preservation, many loved ones will step away from that addict. One of the most interesting parts of my job, however, is helping the men that I work with rebuild those relationships now that they are sober and in recovery. Now this can be an extremely complicated and rewarding process as both the inmate and their loved ones, primarily their spouse or former spouse or you know any other kind of significant other, have to become conscious of destructive dynamics together if they want to see their relationship succeed. Usually this means that the inmate will have to initiate this process by first acknowledging and taking responsibility for his destructive behavior leading up to his incarceration. As he moves forward, he will also have to become much more attuned to dysfunctional dynamics in his relationships that can threaten to derail his recovery and the relationships they are trying to build in the present. This comes up when the man I'm working with wants to create a healthier relationship with his spouse, but whose spouse may still be using or engaging in behavior that the two of them may have engaged in together that was not healthy. At this point, many of the men I work with have to acknowledge that their relationship wasn't healthy to begin with and may have to reevaluate if being in that relationship is really conducive to their recovery. Some men discover that their marriages just aren't salvageable, while others attempt to get their partners clean out of a sense of love and compassion. It's a sad fact, however, that most of the inmates who attempt to get their partner clean are much more likely to start using again themselves. I tell my guys that they'll have you using way before you have them clean. Of course, there are exceptions to this, but it's a lot easier for a former addict to start using again than it is for them to help get somebody else clean, especially if their combined history was previously built on this kind of behavior. Another way I see relationship dynamics play out is when the wife of an inmate sticks with him throughout his substance abuse and criminal behavior, even through his incarceration. Then the man, the inmate, gets in, gets into recovery and starts to make a number of positive changes in himself. And wham! Suddenly and unexpectedly, the wife, who has stayed by his side throughout his worst, now wants a divorce. You see, it's interesting how we all fall into patterns and roles in relationships that are often unconscious in nature. Some of these may be positive and some negative, but it's the change in these dynamics that really mess with people and threaten the stability of the relationship. If the two of them can become conscious of these dynamics together, then there is hope for the relationship. But if one of them is still tied to old dysfunctional dynamics and old roles, they won't understand, on a very embodied level, who the other person is in the present, as who they are today does not match the person that their partner is used to. In this sense, people can become very comfortable and invested in relationship dynamics, even destructive ones, for a multitude of reasons that are often unconsciously patterned in their own psychology. In a so-called codependent relationship, we usually find two people tied to each other in a very mutually serving relationship that, unfortunately, is often abusive on some level. The reason that they stay in the relationship is because, again, the dynamic is usually unconscious, meaning that the couple is generally not aware of the dysfunction, and because the dynamic has become comfortable to each of them for some reason. I see this dynamic all the time in the past relationships of the men I work with. Let me repeat that. All the time. 
So it makes me think, David, you know, a lot of systems theory in psychology and this whole idea of like homeostasis that even with dysfunction, like the relationship wants to stay kind of the way that it is. And so there's always this kind of pull to pull people back into their old roles. And, you know, just kind of what you were describing really reminded me a lot of that. Well, creating healthy relationships is probably one of the single most important things that I have to really stress when I am working as a substance abuse counselor. There's no question about that. Their relationships and how healthy those relationships are can probably be one of the single biggest determinants as to whether or not they will be successful. And the crazy thing about that is that relationships are fascinatingly complicated. They really are. And it's something that we have to have to survive. And I mean, it impacts so many aspects of our lives. And so I could see how that would be such an important piece of the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. And people from their past, if you've spent five or 10 years in prison and you get out, the people from your past, they may really care about you, but they may not understand who you are today. And so they unconsciously will try to put you back into the role that they know you in. And that is what really threatens recovery. You are getting pulled back into old roles. And then those old roles start to feel good to you because that's what you're used to. Right, they're comfortable. Right. And so that's something that a lot of guys have to stay on guard for and watch out for because it happens all the time. I see it all the time. In fact, it's probably the single biggest relationship issue I have to focus on when it comes to prisoners with substance abuse issues. In any family, when an addict is present, there is the potential for a kind of dysfunction whereby other members of the family give up pieces of themselves, so to speak, to maneuver around the addict. So let's use a hypothetical example, okay? You know, a typical family of four. Mother, father, son, and daughter. Okay, well, let's say father's got a drinking problem or a drug problem or a gambling problem or a workaholism problem. Usually, members of the family know Something isn't quite right, but have, over time, become accustomed to living in a quasi-state of denial about what they're seeing in the behavior of the father. And there are a myriad of ways to do this. I won't go into all of them, but suffice to say we adopt roles in our family to sort of protect ourselves psychologically and emotionally from what we're seeing out of the addict. One may become the so-called family mascot. Um, One may become an overachiever. Another may start to act out by becoming the lost child, while another may become the family clown. Each one of these roles is a defense mechanism to deal with the addict, in this case, the father, and their behaviors, which may be, in turns, abusive, embarrassing, or neglectful. The most important thing to remember in this kind of family dynamic is that no one really feels comfortable being themselves. They are usually tied to the family roles which work around the family, but cause trouble in relationships as they move on. This was also the case, I would argue, with Paul Bernardo, who became a sort of family mascot even though he grew up the son of a child molester, and a mother who seemed to retreat from this fact rather than confront her husband's behavior. Bernardo's mother lacked a backbone as it related to this. It was reported that she withdrew and became very depressed, only seeming to fuel Bernardo's blossoming anger towards women. This was also reinforced when Bernardo found out that he was the product of an affair his mother had rather than the biological son of his father. While Bernardo's father wasn't an addict, so to speak, the dynamic was the same. Something was very wrong in the family and no one was talking about it. 
I'll post some links about this stuff on our webpage as well for those interested in how people raised with addicts in the family often carry these patterns with them into their adult life as well, and which become maladaptive later on in their own lives. In this example, however, what we're most interested in is the role of the mother, who will most likely take on the role of the enabler. This person supports the behavior of the addict, often to the extent where she will give up her own needs in the relationship. This can be typical for partners of addicts or partners of people who abuse them. Enablers will often cover for the behaviors of the addict by making excuses, gaslighting others to convince them they aren't seeing what they're really seeing, especially the children, and generally living in a state of denial in an attempt to keep the family structure intact. This is an example of codependency. There may be many different forms of codependency in relationships, but this is the basic form that I deal with at work. Many of the men I work with come from families where this dynamic was present, so they are simply reenacting what they are used to and have been modeled in their own childhoods. Suffice to say, one person generally falls into the taker role, while the other falls into the giver role. The taker in this case would be the father, the giver, the mother, the enabler. Okay, in this case, it seems Bernardo was definitely the taker, while Homoka, who seemed to dance around his whims, no matter how perverted and destructive, was the giver. So in this case, I would amplify the addict example I just gave you by about a thousand, and then you have the case of Bernardo and Homoka. The key here, however, even though I would argue Homoka was the giver in the relationship, was that she was making a choice to be in the relationship. Enablers in codependent relationships are also receiving something from the relationship that they need as well, which is often that they need to be needed by someone else. You know, it took me a while to understand this dynamic, but once I did, I was able to see this in a relationship between a couple of friends of mine at the time. In the case of my old friends, the guy was physically abusive at times, he abused drugs, he was emotionally immature, and generally unreliable. He also cheated on her. She, on the other hand, took care of basically everything that he did, including all the bills, the domestic duties, she raised the kids, and she was building her own career. And he ate it up because she took care of everything adult-related, and he could basically go and party and do drugs and philander. So the obvious question here is, why did she put up with this? The funny thing was, is that she was basically obsessed with this guy. It was as if she was convinced that they were meant to be together, no matter what he did or how he treated her. But her playing the adult role all the time actually gave her a great deal of power in the relationship and a sense of being needed by this grown man who was actually a pretty helpless emotional adolescent. In Jungian psychology, we call men like this puers, by the way, or puer eternus, which means eternal boy, and was something Jung wrote about extensively as a way that men can become arrested in their psychosocial development. At any rate, these two had become embedded in these roles. Now, I would call them dysfunctional, but it worked for them because both were unconsciously using each other to satisfy deep-seated psychological drives. Him to never have to grow up and act like an adult, and her to have him dependent on her in order to fully function in an adult world. I see this dynamic playing out a great deal in a much more extreme way between Bernardo and Homolka. While Homoka did attempt to use a victim role for her legal defense, it did seem pretty obvious that she got a thrill out of power and control as well. She kept Bernardo's secrets, which also gave her a tremendous amount of power in the relationship. In many ways, Bernardo was dependent on Homoka as he didn't seem to be able to hold on to a steady job or anything else that would really be expected of an adult. 
His relationship with her allowed him to play around with his uninspired music hobby and obsess on committing his horrible crimes by abducting, raping, and murdering women. You know, Jung posited that it's actually through our relationships with others that we push ourselves to grow the most. And so being with someone romantically can have a profound effect on us in good and bad ways. People often find themselves doing things that are out of character for them while in codependent relationships because old roles are being activated. Because these roles may feel comfortable, we fall into relationships that play out past traumas in an attempt to reconcile childhood wounds. This is fine if we can become conscious of this process in our relationships. If not, these roles and dynamics remain unconscious. Then we can find ourselves still unable to be fully authentic and present in our relationships. In Bernardo and Homolka's case, we have two very dark personality types just feeding into and reinforcing each other, which is bound to happen from time to time when people like this find each other and create this very dark and toxic combination, a dynamic that each may not have created if they were on their own. Yeah, it makes me think like the sum is greater than than its parts. You know, I mean, it's, it is very interesting, I think, to look independently at Homolka and Bernardo. But I agree that, you know, that's been done quite a bit. And it really is the, the relationship that is so fascinating about this case, how they fed off of each other, how um, it just kind of went on for as long as it did. It's just, I mean, you can't talk about this case without discussing those relationship dynamics, I think. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, And to me, that was really what was the most interesting part. It was this very toxic thing that happened when the two of them got together. Each one of them obviously had issues on their own. And I believe that with Homolka, what was interesting about her is that one of the psychologists that did uh, evaluate her, and I believe the term that he used was moral vacuity which means that she had this very strange ability to just sort of lack morals, Hmm. Um, which to me, again, kind of signifies maybe a few ticks up on that psychopathy spectrum. But that's debatable. But I find that interesting. And then what suddenly Bernardo does with that in her and uses that to get what he wants, it's just fascinating to me. You know, and then the two of them get together and they commit these uh, incredibly heinous crimes. It like truly is an example of a match made in hell. Like they were like the worst people for each other and yet they found each other. Right. I agree. Well, it's a very interesting case and we'll have links to some of the articles, Dr. Salter's book, the Warren and Hazelwood article. And the book Adult Children of Alcoholics, which discusses codependency Those will all be on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We'll also have a link to the other podcast that we listen to, Writing About Crime. Yes, absolutely. You guys should check it out if you like true crime. It's very well done. You can also send us any episode ideas that you might have from our website as well. We always love receiving those. And you can find our merchandise shop there also. So if you'd like to support Psychology After Dark and sport some of our merch. We'd really appreciate that. And David, we're getting close to our season four finale. Yes, we are. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh. So we are actually having our patrons vote on the topic for the season finale. So if you want to have some input, please check us out on Patreon. We'll also be having a live stream Q&A session with our patrons at the end of season four. 
And our patrons get access to exclusive content and merchandise, so please check that out. And thank you to everyone who has subscribed to our podcast, left us a rating or review, emailed us an episode idea, has become a patron, or supported us by purchasing merchandise. We could not do this podcast without you. And I just want to let you guys know how much we really appreciate you. And David, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and Starlight by Soft Space, both provided by Jamendo.